This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. This is the Science Podcast for October 21st, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we talk with journalists and scientists about the most interesting news and research from Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week, we talk about tough snakes. Staff writer Liz Panisi discusses some snakes that have adapted to the harsh conditions of the Tibetan Plateau. After that, we hear about a paper on moving more computing power to the edges of the internet. Producer Megan Cantwell talks with researcher Alexander Sluts about a faster, more energy-efficient approach to give edge devices like low-power smart sensors or tiny aerial drones to give these small devices the computing power of far larger machines. Now we have Liz Pedisi. She's a staff writer for Science. She wrote this week about snakes that have adapted to super harsh conditions on the Tibetan Plateau. Hi, Liz. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm in my happy place talking about snakes here today. So this snake, Thermophis bailei, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but I am using the scientific name here because the common name is a bit of a giveaway about their lifestyle. So what is life like for a snake trying to survive in such an inhospitable place, thousands of meters up in really cold conditions for a snake? They live by hot springs so that it's a little bit warmer than the typical cold weather on the Tibetan Plateau. Their daily life is pretty limited. They wait until the warmest part of the day to be active. So what they do in the warm part of the day is they go out and they hunt frogs and fish in the rivers draining from the hot streams. So the water is can be pretty warm. That's the the common name here. It's the Tibetan hot spring snake. Yeah. So that's it kind of gives away their their special mode of survival. And that hot spring hanging out behavior has been observed before, you know, for however long. But now researchers have taken a look at how these snakes genes relate to living in such a inhospitable place. And there's a lot, there's a lot to learn. Let's start with this behavior of being close to hot springs. 
some snakes have sensors on their faces that detect infrared or heat signatures. Is that what these snakes do? Are they kind of hot spring seeking snakes? They are hot spring seeking snakes. So the researchers did an analysis of their the genomes of this hot spring snake and some other snakes like rattlesnakes and pythons that search out prey by sensing the heat of the prey of a mouse, for example, its body temperature is warmer than the surrounding air. And these heat sensing snakes basically tell where their prey is in the dark by sensing that warmness. Now, it turns out that the genomes of both kinds of snakes, both the hot spring snakes and the heat sensing snakes, have mutations in the same gene, but there are different mutations. So the gene is for what's called an ion channel, which is a pore through a cell membrane that opens up and lets in charged particles. And what that does is it sets off a cascade of signals. So when the snake senses heat, for example, the ion channel opens and it relays to the nerve, okay, here's where the prey is or here's where the warm water is. So is there anything different about the the hot spring snakes? So it turns out that the mutations in the hot spring snakes are different than the mutations in the other snakes. In the other snakes, those mutations make them exquisitely sensitive to temperature. So the ion channel is triggered at a cooler temperature, so they're easily able to find a prey. In the hot spring snakes, they're not more sensitive to lower temperatures, but instead when they do sense uh, warmth, they react very quickly. Is it possible that a hot spring can be too hot for a snake? It doesn't want to look for prey in, in this body of water? Yes, that's always a danger that when looking for prey, they could be going into water that's a little too hot for them. So some people think that the sensor evolved so that they can easily tell when they're approaching danger. Oh, it's actually like a range instead of just like, oh, this looks like a temperature above what my body temperature is. I'm going to go to that. It's much more like safety zone. Right. What about high elevation adaptation? This is something that we've seen in different animals, even people. And we're also talking about incredibly high elevations here, sometimes 4,500 meters. Do these snakes also have genetic changes that seem to be linked with surviving these elevations? They have many genetic changes that are linked to surviving at high altitudes. And again, some of these genetic changes are in genes that are changed in people who live high up in yaks, in birds, and other animals that tend to live in these very high environments where it can be very cold, the sun can be very intense, and the oxygen can be lower than normal. How do they deal with the oxygen levels? They have mutations in genes that can help them make their heartbeat more powerfully or make their blood cells work more efficiently, things like that. Sunlight as well is something they have to worry about because basically they're less protected by the atmosphere. The sun is more direct up there. So one of the things that sunlight does is it can damage your DNA. These snakes have particularly adept ways of repairing that DNA. So we're talking about a lot of adaptations here across a wide range of physiology. 
they adapt to the cold by having these these special ion channel genes. They adapt to low oxygen by having genes that basically help make their circulatory system more efficient. And they adapt to the sunlight by having these DNA repair genes. So those are three major adaptations. Despite all these super cool adaptations that we've just talked about, I think my favorite part of the story is actually how the history of the land and its climate is found in these snakes' genes. Can you talk a bit about that? So one of the things these researchers did is survey the genomics of snakes across their 500-kilometer range. By doing that, they could tell what kinds of differences there were between snakes in different parts of their range. And from those differences could surmise how history has affected them. So what they find is that there are three basic groups of Tibetan hopstring snakes, Eastern or Western and a Central portion. And from the genetic data, they could tell that the Western group was established a half a million years ago, probably during an ice age that was happening then. And that the Eastern and Central groups split off from the Western groups much, much later in time, say about 300,000 years ago, again, when there was the Ice Age. What happens during the Ice Age is the land around the hot spring snakes becomes covered with ice. And so the snakes can't move from hot spring to hot spring. And so they get isolated and isolated long enough that they start developing genetic differences. And those are seen in, the, in today's snakes. Very cool. All right, Liz, what about now? Climate is changing. Are these snakes in trouble? So they're not in trouble so much because of the changing climate, at least not yet. The current threat is people. More and more people are visiting these hot springs for health reasons, to use them as spas. So they don't want a snake in their spa. <laughs> yeah, I guess they don't want them in their spa. And there's also road construction for different kinds of development, and including geothermal energy. And so the researchers have found some hot springs where the snakes' dens, where they hibernate during the really rough part of the winter, have been destroyed. And also the young snakes like to hang out in wetland areas near the springs, and those are also being destroyed. Are there any efforts to protect these snakes? Yeah, there's uh, plans next spring for one group of researchers to build a snake conservation zone. And they're going to build fences to keep people out of, say, the den areas. They're going to construct artificial dens. And they're going to monitor the snakes to see how they do. Okay. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you. Liz Panisi is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the article we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a chat with producer Megan Cantwell and researcher Alexander Sludz about delivering high-power computing to low-power devices like cell phones. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. 
There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. Machine learning teaches computers how to learn from experience instead of explicitly programming them, and that requires lots of processing power and memory. Advanced machine learning can't be run on devices with lower power and memory. These are things like smartphones or drones. This Week in Science, Alex Sleds and colleagues discuss a solution they came up with to run more advanced models on low-power devices. Thank you so much for joining me, Alex. Hey, it's great to be here, Megan. Currently, edge devices, these are devices that connect two networks together, like a VR headset, aren't very good at super processing heavy tasks, especially complex learning models. Why exactly is this so difficult to achieve on these types of devices? The way we build computers today is we make use of principles starting back from the 1940s or 1950s, where we use what's called the von Neumann architecture. Memory like the DRAM that's inside your computer today, is physically separated from where the compute actually happens, such as your CPU. Because of that, because we keep them separated, there's this big interconnect bottleneck where we have all this big highway of data we need to get back and forth between the two. And that really limits the energy efficiency of these systems, as well as the bandwidth we can operate them at. The learning model that this paper focuses on bringing to these edge devices is known as a deep neural network. How exactly do we use deep neural networks in our everyday life? Yeah, so deep neural networks really are becoming quite ubiquitous in our daily lives. So if I go to Google and you type in a search query on Google right now, such as what is the height of Mount Everest, that actually gets run through a deep neural network on Google's end that they call PageRank. Also, examples like voice assistants, Siri and Alexa, really are um, in everyone's pockets these days you're kind of seeing on all of these devices that neural networks are, are getting closer and closer to the people. You know, the deep neural network is not actually, that computing is not taking place on our phone. That data is being sent off to be processed and then we're getting the results back. How is it made possible? What is usually the way that we're receiving this kind of information since it's not being processed on our physical phone? In modern context today, when we on our phones can't run these neural networks, we make queries to servers like big beefy computers that do run the neural networks for us. These are located in data centers, many tens or hundreds of kilometers away from where we are today. We call it the cloud. So when I ask Siri what the height of Mount Everest is, Siri sends a query off, which goes to a computer very far away. So it takes a long time to get there. There's a lot of uh, latency associated with going through those big computers in the data center. You're put in a queue and then the result is sent back. And that's why when you when you ask these questions to your voice assistant, it takes many seconds to actually get an answer back. When you're going on Google and searching something, it seems pretty fast, right? You get an answer pretty quickly. But in what cases is our current structure for doing this sort of more complex modeling kind of a hindrance? Like, what do we need improvements for? Let's consider one example, which might be self-driving cars. In a self-driving car today, we have a camera, which is, is looking at the scene around you. And it's trying to look for things like pedestrians, other cars, kind of figure it, it's trying to make sense of the world around it. And it does inference on those in real time, such as asking, what is this object I'm looking at? And so it needs to think on the millisecond timescale. Now, modern self-driving cars, if I look at a Tesla, for example, they have these very, very large computers that they integrate inside of them. The Tesla AI chip that they presented in 2019 consumes about 400 watts. And there's a couple of copies of that inside the car. 
those are very good at doing machine learning, but also they really drain the battery life of the car. So, you know, your, your range is limited. Ideally, what you'd be able to do is be able to offload that computation from the car itself, do it somewhere where there's a lot more access to power, but still keep the physical latency as low as possible. However, if you tried to offload all of that processing to a data center, the latency would be so high, you, you know, you'd hit every object in, in your field of view. Yeah, definitely not ideal, which is why your team came up with a different approach to process this kind of data on edge devices. Can you explain exactly how the system that your team devised, Netcast, works? Sure. We had a couple insights here to enable a machine learning computer on edge devices, like a drone or a car or a smartphone, that can be made in realistic technology today a thousand times faster and a thousand times more power efficient than what you could do with just digital electronics. And so the first observation we made is that because of this von Neumann bottleneck, weight data movement's a big problem. And so what if we can take all the heavy lifting of accessing weights and moving them around and put it somewhere else where it has access to more abundant power? And so we call that a smart transceiver, a device which can access the weights and we're going to encode them onto optical signals, which will then deploy to the client device using either fiber or free space. So currently when an edge device wants to run a deep neural network, it's just offloading that really computationally intensive task to a server in the cloud. But it sounds like Netcast is different in that the devices aren't computing by offloading, but instead they're using this smart transceiver to ship the data into the device. Yeah, that's right. Then once the weights get to the client device, we need a way of encoding the image we measured, for example, or the voice query onto the receive signal. And so we make use of a single optical component. It's just a pipe that we can squeeze to change the amount of light that gets through. If we squeeze it by an amount one, all of the light gets through, we encode the value one. And if we squeeze it by the amount zero, none of the light gets through. We can fully attenuate all the light. And by squeezing it by different amounts, we can take the pixel value for each pixel in the image, step through them, and we can squeeze it by the amount of the pixel and that allows us to do multiplication of the incoming optical information and the, the input value. Our final innovation here is they're making use of what's called a time integrating receiver. These are custom detectors. They're kind of like a, like a camera almost, how a camera pixel works. But the point is that they're very slow. When you look at how these machine learning models work, the thing they're doing is they're doing linear algebra, which involves taking a vector and a matrix and multiplying them. And they have a common dimension there which we have to sum over. So you, you do many multiplications and you add them together. By doing integration, summing, of the vector and the matrix, we can actually lower our electronic speeds on that client device by a factor of 1,000. And that gives us a huge improvement in performance without sacrificing on how fast we can do the compute, which is gigahertz speeds. You were able to test this technology on MIT's campus, right? Kind of as a little test scenario. How exactly did that go? What did you learn from actually using this method in real life? We did two different types of demonstrations. We did a local benchmark where there's, there's only a couple of meters of fiber between the transmitter and receiver, just a sanity check that our proposal works. But then when we knew that their technology worked like we thought it did, we actually decided we'd do a Boston area field trial. And so we have 86 kilometers of fiber between our lab at MIT and MIT Lincoln Laboratories, which is up in Lexington, Massachusetts. And so we can send our optical signals through that fiber that snakes throughout the Boston area. And when it arrives on the other side at the client device, we can do image classification and really accurate image classification, too. It's like 99 percent accurate. How exactly would 
this approach work for devices that can't be tethered, like smartphones or drones or satellites? There's a lot of incumbent technologies that can really enable this on stationary devices. So if I have a camera that's set up on a street pole, you can easily run fiber up to this. And that's, that's relatively cheap to do. However, there's a lot of devices like your smartphone where I don't want a fiber attached to this as I walk around all day. That's not very realistic. So is there some emerging technologies such as, as uh, Li-Fi, where we can co-integrate uh, free space optical deployment of data in rooms or in, in cities to those devices, and that can enable this technology? We talked about self-driving cars, but is there a specific scenario that you envision this being used for that you're really excited about? So I think battery-starved environments are a very interesting scenario. So uh, you mentioned drones at the start of this interview, where a drone is a really battery-starved system, where we want to keep the flight time as high as possible to enable applications in surveying or enable viewing and et cetera. We really can't integrate things like an NVIDIA GPU onto a drone. The GPU would consume more power than the motors do. But free space optics would enable us to deploy the model to the drone. So it doesn't need this, this really power-hungry computer. We could have something that consumes a milliwatt of power, like an LED blinking kind of power consumption. Beyond that, there's more exotic ideas that I think are promising and might be worth looking into. So satellites that orbit planets, like the moon, for example, do a lot of image classification. They take a lot of data. And NASA for a long time has been looking at how do we increase our uplink speed and downlink speed to satellites orbiting the moon so that we can get the images back. Traditionally, this is done using radio signals. And so the bandwidth is quite limited. And NASA has been moving towards optics for quite some time now. They've had a lot of demonstrations of free space optics going up to satellites. It would be cool if we could deploy machine learning models to the satellites that they don't have to run natively because they're power starved to figure out, are these images worth sending back? And so in that way, the satellite could do compute locally without having to consume so much power. And then we could make use, better use of that bandwidth that the satellite has to send images back. Thank you so much for walking me through this. Thank you, Megan. Alex Sleds is a graduate student at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. You can find a link to his paper at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science site at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and his publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, 
is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.